This is Matt Brown, and you're listening to Just a Good Conversation. My guest today is Jenny Topping. I had the pleasure for three years to photograph Jenny during her time playing softball at Cal State Fullerton. She is not one of the best female athletes I've ever had a chance to photograph. She is one of the best athletes I've captured in my years behind a camera. We talk about everything from recruiting in college, working at a subway, and sock drawers. Getting on that podium, you're trying to put it together. And I just remember, what is the point of this? Having that feeling and, you know, I'm bending down and they're putting the gold medal around my neck and I look up into the stands and my parents and my sister and her boyfriend at the time and an aunt are all just just bawling. They're crying. And I, I sort of put it together. I was like, wow, this is this is you know, at that time, this is this was my give back to my family who sacrificed everything for me. I'm Matt Brown, host of Just Good Conversation. Take a listen to our archives. My guests have ranged from real estate agents, professional photographers, and longtime newspaper man Jim McCormick. So I had three relatives tell me I could come live with them to go to college. One was in Bakersfield, a great aunt. One was a cousin of my mother in Boise, Idaho. And then the other one was my favorite aunt who lived in Compton. So I picked Compton. And this this just tells you what a blessed life I've lived. I talked about that a little bit. She gave up her bedroom to me for two years and slept on a couch so that I could go to Compton College. And my parents took in foster kids for $50 a month and sent her the 50 bucks to feed me. So, so I got through two years at Compton College and was interested only in, in journal. My, you know, most of my classes I was awful in, but I, journalism and photography, I, I just were an obsession with me. So I did fine there. Go to justagoodconversation.com for all our archives. Let's take a quick break for our sponsor before diving into my conversation with Jenny Topping. I am so fortunate to be sitting down across a microphone with the great Jenny Topping. How are you? Hi, great. How are you doing? I am good. I, like we talked about when we always do the pre-podcast, mm -hmm. I know a little bit about you and I know sure. a lot about you, but I want, I know where you grew up. But I am so excited, and I hope I don't screw this up, but am I talking to the first Highlander on this podcast? Wow, uh, that might be, yeah. Yeah, right? Mm -hmm. I'm a La Habra La Highlander as well. I did not know that. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yes, <laughs> 89. Okay, okay. Wow, that's, that's I, I had no idea. Yeah. Very exciting. Yeah. Okay. So tell me about growing up in Whittier slash La Habra. You know, um, it was a great experience. I have two sisters, two older sisters. And, um, oh, you're the I baby. Not, I'm the baby. Yep. <laughs> but we're all a year and a half apart. So it's, it's like, we're real close. There was lots of fighting over shirts and <laughs> pants and things of that sort. Right. <laughs> so, um, it was great. My parents moved from more like a uptown Whittier to right on the, right at the edge of beach and Imperial, basically right on the edge of La Habra. Brea. And, um, Wait, where, where, in where's that beach and Imperial whereabouts beach and Imperial by the McDonald's highway. or by the in, in, right in those, um, they're like sixties tract homes that yeah. are, uh, yeah. Right by Rancho Starbuck. Yeah. I, that was my junior high. 
Oh my gosh. Yeah, I, I grew up with, I don't know if you were young enough to remember, but remember where Fashion Square was? Sure. Yeah, I grew yep. up I grew up right north of that uh, off a of white wow. book. Small world. Yeah. Huh. Well, so my parents moved there um, for our second home and they chose a nice little cul-de-sac home and um it was it was perfect there were lots of kids my age in the neighborhood and so um I always say that I got my career started by playing in the streets with other kids and you know we'd find all kinds of things we'd lose tennis balls and we'd take rocks and I'd borrow uh my dad's electrical tape and <laughs> roll it enough time to create something to, to hit or throw with so I really had the traditional grow up in the streets, um, hoping that the, the street lights light bulb would, would actually go out because that was the sign that I had to come in was when the street lights came on. And, um, so I was pretty fortunate. Um, my parents didn't have a lot of money, but, um, they gave us lots of access to be creative. That's you know, good. the question was always, we're bored. And my parents would say, go outside and find something to do. So, uh, um, I was fortunate at a young age to just recognize that I liked sports. When did you start discovering softball? There was a girl across the street and her name was Nicole and, and Almanza. And, um, she was good friends with my oldest sister and she had started to play on a rec team, a rec softball league. And, um, she kept begging my parents to play. And so then, you know, at that point, my parents said, well, would your other two siblings like to play? And all three of us said, sure. And um, so that, that I was nine years old, and that sort of began the journey of uh, playing sports. I fell in love instantly. Um, was that your first sport, or did you play anything else along the way? You know what? Because we were, the three of us were so close in age, um, we didn't my parents were not the type of people that, you know, let's try soccer. Let's try this. Let's try that. So that was literally the first sport I ever played. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Which is interesting. Um, within like a few years, my dad got me a, a tennis lesson and I, I was, you know, pretty good at that and enjoyed that, but I was already hooked on softball by that point. So tennis. Wow. The mm -hmm. whole world could have changed. You could have been the left-handed McEnroe. I know that's, I, you know, Everything happens for a reason, but I'm like, wow, there would have been a lot more money in my pocket had I chose tennis. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no one thinks of that when you're nine. Uh, exactly. <laughs> oh, God. So, I mean, did you just take to it immediately? Like, it, you just fell in love with the game? I just, yeah, I absolutely loved it. They put me at shortstop my first year. And um, I think the biggest driving force for me was being left-handed and being pretty athletic. People were constantly telling me, Oh, you can't play there. You can't play there. And so, um, you know, they were smart enough to quickly switch me from shortstop and move me around. And, and I tried catcher for the first time fairly young and it sort of stuck. Now see, isn't um, that the anti left-handed position playing catcher? Yeah. Most definitely. I just was unwilling, you know, this is again, part of whenever I get the opportunity to speak to youth athletes, you know, people told me my whole life, you can't be a left-handed catcher. And if I would have believed them, I wouldn't be where I'm at. And I would just say, watch me. Um, and I just had no doubt, um, that I was going to do it because I loved it. So, wow. 
Because I mean, you, I mean, uh, obviously, you know, I'm sure you heard everybody tell you, I mean, that's just, you can't do that. You shouldn't be throwing sure. from that side. You're going to hit everybody and can't see third, the whole, you know, <laughs> all the excuses. Sure. It's like the guy who first ran the five minute mile. It took quite a while for someone else to believe that they could. Right. And then now everybody can run a five minute mile. So the reality is, is what prevents us from being able to do something is most of the time it's our mind. So from there, I mean, was it mm -hmm. just off and running Were were you just playing, did you get into travel ball or was it just regular league? You know, I played league three years and then I played one of those like winter travel ball teams, just a local winter travel ball team. And then it just sort of took off from there where coaches would see me play and, um, invite me to teams, but I, I didn't play on a ton of teams. I played on that 12 U team. And then I played for two firecrackers teams. And then I was right into a top 18 team, but I was fortunate throughout that path. You know, I really only had one, two, three, four coaches within the span of once I played travel ball. Wow. And, um, yeah. Did and, you ever get um, to play with your sisters on the same team? You know what? My first maybe two years of rec, I played with my middle sister. Okay. And my dad always, you know, said that he believed that she was more talented than me, but she just didn't have the desire. So. And that happens actually a lot. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of talented people that just, they quit. They just don't have the grind and the grit. Yeah. The mental, you know, um, I say this to my athletes all the time, you know, when you're, when you get to a certain level, the physical capabilities for the most part is fairly equal right. amongst your teammates, but the delineation is really your, your, your mental capacity, the ability to consistently get yourself to a clear space in your head to allow all of the physical practice to show up. You know, the body knows how to do things. It memorizes it. That's why they, they call PS, PTSD is in the body because your body actually memorizes patterns. The mind doesn't know how to do that. The mind tries to recreate it. And right. so, you know, when you're, when you're obviously when you're thinking, when you're playing, you're trying to reinvent something in that moment, whereas the body knows how to do it. Right. That's, you know, again, another word for muscle memory. So if you've taken one perfect swing or you've thrown one quote perfect throw, you can repeat it all the time. So what, what, what is the intersection that causes the, you know, the inability to repeat it consistently? And that is, the, that is the mind. Was there a point during high school when you're playing now, did you realize how good you were? No, I had no idea. When did, and I didn't, I didn't care to know. I just, I just, I was so, I was so focused on playing. Um, I think the, I was, I just wanted to play. Right. And I, I, I had the ability and, and I'm sure a lot of athletes are this way. You almost become one track mind and not in a neurotic way, but I just knew this was my path and this is what I wanted to do. And I didn't look in the future and I didn't spend a lot of time in the past. I spent a lot of time in the present moment enjoying it. Did you enjoy those? Like, cause high school is probably like the, well, at least it was then it's like the last mm -hmm. times where it's like still fun and it doesn't become like mm -hmm. the college business. Did you enjoy mm -hmm. those times? 
To be honest, I never experienced pressure until probably towards the end of my U.S. career, okay. USA career. I had no concept of pressure. Um, uh, so was that because it was, it was all fun for me? Wow, hmm. that's great because I mean yeah. I, I watch some kids now; they're just a mess. Yeah, they come into the program a mess. They leave a mess. They just they overanalyze everything and they're just so stressed yeah. about the game it crushes them. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I related a lot to how much we're programming our children at home as parents into following rules. Right. If, if we're, if there's so many heavy, heavy expectations and rules, then what comes with not not following through with whatever the rule is the parents put on is shame and guilt. And when shame and guilt starts to enter into your mind, you know, those things are going to, and fear, and those things are going to show up on the field. Um, but for me, I have this, I have this, when I look back, I had this interesting space where, you know, when I stepped onto the field, I could create a space of quiet. It was a meditation for me. It became peaceful. Um, it became slow motion. And it, it, it is exactly where I was connecting to the greater power. I couldn't have done it on my own. Hmm. Once I stepped off the field, for whatever reason, the world would tell me all the time I was wrong. I was not good enough body's not good enough. My looks aren't good enough. My sexuality's not good enough. And, but I had the ability to shut that off when I stepped onto the softball field for some reason. Wow. Where do you think you mm -hmm. got that from? Was that from mom and I dad? Think, I think it be, well, you know, that's a really good question. I mean, I think we're born with knowing the truth of who we are and then we're, we're layered upon with rules and, we're taught shame and guilt and, and we're taught all of these things, you know, socially, societally, educationally, politically. Um, and question becomes, where's your space where none of those things have access to you? And some people call it meditation. Other people call it, it's their yoga. Um, some will call it in, you know, in the Bible, wherever you find that space of quiet, um, conduit for me, that was on the softball field, a hundred percent. Wow. And I just got good at repeating it. I didn't understand what I was doing, but every great athlete, every athlete in general, you don't even have to be great to say when you've hit, when you've hit the ball and it felt easy and effortless and it, it's all the common description what were you thinking? There was nothing in my head. It felt like it was slow motion. The ball looked like a watermelon. I mean, you hear these consistent descriptions right. when everything lines up, right? Well, I, I truly believe that's actually how we're supposed to live life. That doesn't mean that we're capable of, of creating that space every moment of our life, but life should feel that way. No, so that would be wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and there's a lot of people with, that say that it is, it is practicing being in the present moment, that you're so present. There's, there's, 
you know, when we're in the past, we're thinking we're, we're thinking about all the things we've done wrong. When we're in the future, we're trying, which is great to be in the future to project what we want from life. But when we spend so much time there, we're trying to escape from the now. But truly, our greatest moments are in the present moment when things are easy and effortless and they flow and there's no doubt and there's no judgment and there's no stress, there's no fear, there's no shame or guilt or any of those emotions are not happening. We're right. just completely clear-minded. Well, let's, let's go back <laughs> then to say, how was that recruiting process for you to Washington mm -hmm. or just in general? What schools did you look at? So, um, two school, I mean, uh, I was recruited by many, but, um, the two schools, you're being kind, you're not recruited reason, by everybody, <laughs> everybody, yeah, come on. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I was fortunate that yes, I, you know, grew up in the right, right. SoCal is the hot, was the hotbed, especially then for oh. softball. And, um, yeah. I happened to, you know, get the opportunity to play for the, you know, one of the best, uh, travel ball teams really in the country, which was the Gordon Panthers back then. I mean, a lot of the greats played for Gordon's Panthers, whether it was Lisa Fernandez or Amanda Freed or Stacy Newman. I mean, it, there's a line of, of um, Olympians that have played for this organization. So I was fortunate to be on a, on an organization that was heavily recruited. So, um, you know, my, you know, I was recruited, um, Washington and UCLA were the two that recruited heavily recruited me the most. My pitcher that I had caught for three years was Amanda Freed and she ended up verbally committing or committing to UCLA and, mm -hmm. and that's where I wanted to go. And, um, you know, my parents kind of wanted to get me out of the SoCal bubble. Southern California bubble. They wanted me to experience other parts of the area and, or of the world. And so, um, they felt Washington might be a good fit for me. And, um, so I took my trips and, um, how was that trip? Was that your first time to the state of Washington? It wasn't. Yeah, probably. Well, no, I had traveled through travel ball okay. outside of California. Um, but it was probably my first time in Washington, it was beautiful. I had never experienced a place that, um, even in the summer is, you know, green all the time. And the city was exciting. Um, you know, my parents raised me very independent. So, um, you know, I enjoyed my time there. I had a bus pass and I would just on days off, I would just figure out how to get on the bus and go different places by myself because I wanted to explore and, um, see new places. So, yeah. Did you find a connection when you went on that trip and said, you know, I, I really like Washington or was it kind of like this will work? Yeah. You know, it, it, that's a tough one. Cause honestly I wanted to go to UCLA and my parents really wanted me to go to Washington. And, um, so they sort of just kept pushing that agenda. And so that's where I ended up. Unfortunately, it wasn't the best fit for me. But, um, I, I definitely can say I enjoyed my time while I was there. Well, uh, well, yeah, that would be so Amanda was the first person to tell me about you. I did a shoot for the register. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know. She had some crazy, I think it was 
she was in high school, I think, Huntington Beach, Marina, I think, or something. Or, uh, yeah, Pacifica. Yeah, Pacifica. Pacifica. So um, mm-hmm. she did something crazy. I don't know. She didn't let someone, she didn't give up a run for months or whatever it was. Yeah. And so I did a portrait athlete. and she's like, and I had mentioned that I lived in La Habra and she's like, oh, my catcher teammate is at La Habra, mm-hmm. da, da, da. And I was like, well, who is this? And then I shot your uh, letter of intent or when you signed for Washington in the gym. Oh, wow. I had no idea. Oh yeah. my gosh. It was a million years ago. <clears throat> we, we were children. That's amazing. Then. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we were. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, I saw you that 2000 mm-hmm. season, I think it was, uh, you came to Fullerton and mm-hmm. you, I forget what tournament it was or what, maybe I don't remember, but, but I was like, it was the first time I got to lay eyes on you in gear playing. And I was like, Oh my God, this Mm -hmm. woman is a player. Like you carried yourself differently. You swung the bat differently. Like it was so instant. And those 2000 numbers are ridiculous. Those numbers. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, so, cause you had the quick end. You only played nine games your freshman year and got hurt, right? You injured your knee. How did you, how did you injure your knee? Uh, actually over the summer I went, um, to the lake, uh, with some (laughs) friends. I know this is fascinating. Right. And I was, uh, I was wakeboarding for the first time and, you know, I had gotten out of the water and then I started to fall and my butt hit the water and I, I just was trying to muscle myself back up and just, just had a little partial tear. Um, didn't know that at the time, uh, that I had partially torn it, but, um, actually going into Washington, my freshman year, I had a partial tear. We did some rehab and, um, yeah, going into season, excuse me. Uh, however many games in, I was wearing metal spikes, which, um, (laughs) from that moment forward, I never wore metal spikes again, but yeah, just, you know, went to change directions and completely popped it. So, See, but that was a, a catalyst. <laughs> that's a Please. goofy, goofy way to get mm-hmm. injured. Like I would have thought you would say it was the bottom of the seventh. She's rounding <laughs> third. She's a giant gal. We collide at home plate. I make the tag. I, we win the game and she blows out my knee. Not wakeboarding. Right. right? <laughs> Being a kid. Right. 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 Being a kid is how you hurt yourself. Yep. Instead of like the sexy athlete position of like, yeah, I dove sure. in and taken <laughs> my first triple and my spikes yeah. catch. Well, so what I really, ha- I really, I really did it on the field completely catching my spikes. Right. It's getting worse. Right. Yeah. Cause that catcher's position for the love of God, I don't know why in the hell anybody <laughs> wants to play catcher. I mean, I've been around sports my whole life, covered it at every level and I will get in fist fights with whoever wants to argue that the catcher's position is not the toughest position in all of sports. Period. Hands it's down. A, I don't care yeah. if you want to give me nose guard for the New York Giants or whatever, <laughs> playing, you know, with Shaquille O'Neal. The catcher's position is the stupidest position ever created. It's so brutal <laughs> on your body. I, I, it, I, it is. Yes. Right. I mean, and yeah. and we're going to get into this. Like, 
you're part mm-hmm. mother, part psychiatrist. You got to be the play yeah. defense. You got to play offense. Yeah. You're the conduit yeah. with the coach. You got an umpire that's yeah. got his hands all over you all game long. Like <laughs> <laughs> it's, the, and you're wearing so much gear, like for the love There's of God. There's no better position. There's no better position. That's right. for sure. <laughs> yeah. You, you love it to death. Like playing left field yeah. to you, you'd, you'd fall asleep picking, you know, flowers in the outfield. It's brutal. Yeah. That was always my struggle when I'd switch back to first base. Oh, yeah, I'd find myself zoning out. I'd zone out because, you know, it's just not as mentally, you know, catching position is so mental. Yeah. You know, at the end of my career, it it was sometimes more mental than physical just because you have to be so present. Well, let because I, I want to talk about this 2000 season. That yeah, season for you mm-hmm. is absolutely mm-hmm. Nintendo numbers. Absolutely yeah. just stupid. What the hell happened that season for you? You know, um, I had never really been injured. And coming off of that first year of being injured, um, I felt I there there was a burn. There was there was a fire in me to, um, to get back on the field. And what I loved the most back then, it was the PAC 10, not the PAC 12. Right. What I loved the most about, about the PAC 10 was every weekend was a dog fight. Sure. I mean, there wasn't, there were very few teams back then in the PAC 10 that wasn't strong. PAC 10 was one of the, was probably the most dominant, conference then. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, there's one thing I've learned about myself. You know, I wish I'd had someone, you know, that understood this a little bit better because I, I think I could have, believe it or not, had an even better career. Um, but I thrived off of pressure and competition. I, I wanted to always be the one with three balls, two strikes, bottom of the, you know, last inning two outs that that is when my back was against the wall that's when I could create the space of quietness and I slow the ball down and I had this I loved that it was some people called it pressure but it, it was excitement for me and I could almost get outside of my body in those moments and so playing the pack 10 that's what it did for me it Every single weekend was a battle and the pressure or the excitement is what drove me to be successful. I loved it. I thrived in it. What, what was, was mm -hmm. it like an adrenaline rush? For sure. I mean, so, you know, these numbers, flight mode, whatever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. 67 games, 176 at bats, 43 Mm -hmm. runs, 77 hits, a batting average of Mm -hmm. 437. Here's where it gets silly. 90 RBIs, 25 Mm -hmm. home runs. For some reason, you didn't get a triple. You got 20 doubles. I mean, total bags. Because slow. Yeah. (laughs) Not true. Because the following year, you had three. I don't know what happened. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you just wanted to dive into the camera for me. And then, you know, you had uh, 46 uh, walks and, you know, uh, only mm-hmm. 16 strikeouts. And I mean, just, uh, and you stole two bases. I, I mean, those are just <laughs> ridiculous numbers. Yeah. 
And you guys went to the World Series, and your World Series yeah. numbers that I collected are even crazy. You had 10 at-bats officially. You had uh, nine hits, eight, wa- eight walks, one strikeout. Uh, I mean, Jesus, was there anything you didn't want to do? I mean, that's ridiculous. So, so, and you mentioned a little bit, you, the fit mm-hmm. wasn't there for Washington at some point yep. you'd use side. This just isn't working. Yeah. Was it a, so was it a, <clears throat> you tell me, was it, a, was it a personality or, or, or home little, I want to come home. I, um, I think it was more of the, the personality of the program. Okay. Uh, my, my parents, I wouldn't say they were hippies, but I wouldn't say they were uh, military style. They were not um, so programmed that there were so many rules. There was a lot of leeway for me growing up as a kid. And SoCal, for whatever reason, the travel ball teams I played on were, were very similar too. The, the teams that I played for were not, they didn't my, over micromanage me. They gave me freedom in the play. And, um, and I'm not saying there's a there's one way is better than the other, but mm-hmm. I didn't realize that I just don't function well um, when there's a, a high expectation all the time of just being a robot. I was not capable of that. That's just not – and maybe I was, but that's just not my personality. I'm sort of more of with the flow. Um, you know, it's a feel. It's – um, it's easy and effortless and, um, it's joyful and it's playful. That is more my personality than if someone tries to, you know, force me in a block box that I have to, you know, I have to do these things every single day. That's just not my personality type. So for me, I found that I was starting to not really enjoy the game because there was so much extra that for me, I didn't feel like I needed. And it wasn't that, that's the hard part. Your teammates are, you know, going and doing a hundred times over extra and, uh, you know, they're expected to do this amount of volume. So of course, if I'm expected to, so that's, it's sort of the catch 22 that I realized is if I want to be a leader, I have to do at least what my teammates are doing, if not more, if I want to earn their respect. And I think that's a huge component of being a leader. But for myself, the program expectation, I knew I couldn't keep up with it. It just, it just wasn't a fit for me. The PAC 10 was a great fit for me, but the um, style of coaching and it's like playing in Japan. If I'd have played in Japan for a very long time, I, I don't think I could have, perform there for a very long time. The practices were seven hours and, um, just the expectation <laughs> level just wasn't a fit for me. Yeah. Oh, good God. Yeah. Yeah. So, 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 you know, and again, some athletes that works for them and others, it doesn't. And I, I think that still in sports, we sometimes try to put athletes in, in one specific box that it has to be a grind and it has to be in essence, miserable to me, a grind becomes miserable. So, you know, what is it that I need to be successful might be different than another athlete. Right. Well then, so how's that conversation, mom and dad, I want to come home. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I remember calling them and it's, it's actually fall. It's right before 
I'm already starting in school and, and I'm just overwhelmed with this emotion of like, I just, I can't do this. And this is the feeling I cannot do this another season. And so thankfully my parents were always just extremely supportive of me and they knew something was wrong. You know, my mom was, um, a nurse and worked and my dad was the stay at home. So I had a flip flop role. Um, which is amazing because my dad was like my best friend growing up. And so my dad got in the car and he drove up and he had a, he drove up because he had a feeling he was taking me home. Wow. So, mm-hmm. so he drove up and, um, we spent multiple, multiple days having conversations about it. And then, you know, I met with my dad, with the coaching staff and, um, they weren't going they were, you know, they made some, some promises that I knew that they wouldn't be able to fulfill because it's not the style of, of the program. Right. Um, and again, and I'm not saying, you know, that, that, that wasn't for other people. There were lots of athletes that thrived in that scenario. It just wasn't a good fit for me. Right. And Everybody's I remember walking different. out of, yeah. I mean, that's why you try to find a program. That's a good fit for you. Mm-hmm. That, that's really, really important. And for me, I had a feeling that if I were to just push myself to stay there in the grind, it would have dimmed my light. Yeah. You don't need that. You don't need that at all. Yeah. So, so, you know, we went into, I went into a meeting and the, you know, and the coaches said, you know, this is what we're going to do and great. Okay. Okay. And, um, I felt okay about the conversation and I walked out and my dad and I went and talked again. I said, I want to go home. He said, okay. So we went over to my apartment, packed up my stuff and that was it. Drove home. So how does I that, gotta, yeah, I was <laughs> going to say, how do you, mm-hmm. how does that feel? It felt so liberating. I, I wasn't, again, I wasn't thinking past like, thank God I don't have to do this again. I don't have to grind. And I didn't know what the next step was. Well, I, we literally went home. I had to take the semester off because the semester already started. Uh-huh. I got a job at Subway. And I loved it. Made sandwiches. I took time off. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. I can just imagine with that little hat on, those little gloves yeah. making you tuna sandwiches for people. And like, they don't realize you were just yeah. in the College World Series and absolute <laughs> and I took, stud oh. is making you a sandwich. And I took my catcher's practice into that. I, I would ask people, okay, tell me everything you want on your sandwich. And they'd be like, well, how are you going to remember that? I'm like, Trust me, I'll remember it. And, and, you know, and I, it, it was just like I would take my athletics into it. I'm going to be the best sandwich maker there is. And, and honestly, at the end, you know, as I got towards the end of winter, they asked me if I wanted to be a manager. And I said, I'm sorry, but I'm going to college. <laughs> so uh, it was a great experience for me. You franchise by, <laughs> by the end of the year. It was year. very fun. Yeah, <laughs> it was exciting. Damn it. I could have gotten my sandwich made from an Olympian. Uh so, okay. So how does that recruiting process go again? Here you are three like, years later and you've, you've got to do right? it again. So I'm sort of clueless as to how this goes. <laughs> um, how I hear it is that, um, you know, is that Washington won't release me back into the PAC 10 because they don't want to face me. So I'll have to sit out a year if I want to return. Absolutely. That's very typical, right? So that was kind of disappointing to me. Um, my first thought was to go back to UCLA. Go, go to the school that I originally intended to go to. So when that was out, I got calls from Texas, Connie Clark, UNLV, 
and then Gramacki, right? And uh, I took a trip to to UNLV, and you know, unfortunately, I came from Washington, who had this just incredible campus and the softball field. You can, when you hit a home run, you can hit it into the lake. I mean, right. yes. there's nothing greater than that, right? That is a beautiful so, softball field. Oh my gosh, the the whole campus is gorgeous. It is. It was beautiful. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's on the lake. It's gorgeous where the football yeah. stadium sits, Neil, and the everything. It's just first class. Yes. I I will say too, um, you know, my, my, I was pretty sheltered growing up and, you know, my first class was a, of course, a general ed at Washington, but there's 500 people in the class and there's, you know, a TA on a microphone. And that was extremely overwhelming for me. Um, you didn't have that at La Habra? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Exactly. 26 people in your class and you know, everybody. (laughs) Yep. So, um, so, so yeah, um, I had known who Gramacki was, believe it or not, ironically, I really looked up to Gramacki. This is not believe it or not, but I mean, who wouldn't as a catcher? Right. Um, so she played for the rebels. So back then, as you may remember, there was the women's open mm-hmm. and it's where athletes like Gramacki and Michelle Smith and Lisa Fernandez and Dot Richardson would play to stay in shape for the national team or or just to play, right? Right. And and so she and Michelle Smith were playing for the Rebels at that time. And the travel ball team, Gordon's Panthers, a lot of times, believe it or not, um, brilliantly, we would play women's open. And we did pretty well against a lot of the women's opens team to prepare us for nationals. But whenever we played the Rebels or Commotion, you know, these top teams, we would just get smoked and they would beat up on us and you know push us around to show us who was boss but you know we had tons of fun doing that oh yeah um we'll so show you remember, who's the lady <laughs> exactly exactly that's awesome uh, but 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 you know what we had to toughen up because right, we're absolutely you, know, you wouldn't seven, want them to be 16 17 18 year olds yeah exactly so um uh so the rebels were playing in a tournament coming up and Michelle, both Michelle's were actually off at national team tryout. And I'll never forget. They needed a pitcher and a catcher. So who did they ask? Amanda Freed and I, so Amanda Freed and I got to fill in for Michelle Gramacki and Michelle Smith. And that was huge for us. And again, we're playing with these women that are, you know, just tough as nails, just, I mean, they were aggressive. They would slide hard and, um, and I'll never forget that opportunity. And so, um, when, you know, I don't exactly know how, remember how the scenario came up, but I remember meeting Gramacki again and telling her that story and she, I'm sure she chuckled at it and, (laughs) Just realizing more than anything that she was a fit for me. She was a fit for me. Um, I, so, uh, there were times that I wished that the Big West Conference was a little bit more competitive. There were times that I wished that Fullerton had a football program still and right. was a little bit more of a of a, a program. If I'm being totally honest than no, with you, absolutely. But, but that there was something there incredibly for me with Gramacki. Let's think about it. When you're a freshman, your sophomore year at Washington, mm-hmm. what were your Saturdays yes. uh, in the fall? 
you went to a football game more likely, right? Totally. And then yes, you would go 100%. to right, and you would go to basketball games, and because it's yeah. a big arena, whether you guys played at the key or whatever, but it was an event. Yeah. Everybody went, yeah. whether you were in a dorm or back, you, you and your girls and guys, everybody went. It was sure. fun. Fullerton's not like I love Fullerton to death, but that atmosphere yeah. just it doesn't exist. Right. Right. And it was overwhelming to, you know, to be in the student section at a almost surreal. Right. Oh, I bet. Yeah. I mean, again, you know, a kid that I'd never been to a football game. I'd never been to a, in a huge stadium. Wait so a minute. It was, really? So you had never been no. to a college football game before? Never. So your or freshman pro. year? None of the above. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because by that time, the Raiders <laughs> and the Rams have left. So your freshman yeah. year, what was that like at Washington, your first football game? Which is weird to say I to a honest, softball player, right? But what was it honestly, like? Honestly, it was it was like um, it was just so surreal. I, I don't even know how to put it into words. It was overwhelmingly surreal, and I look back and it, it you know a lot of it because I was such a sheltered, naive kid, a lot of it for me was like, I was almost didn't feel ready for all of this, you know, like (laughs) I was this kid that all I did was play softball. And I I wasn't playing softball in high school. I was with, I was just with my family, just my family, you know? So this was big. This, all of this was just, you couldn't even, I couldn't even conceptualize what was happening. So, so yeah, you come to Fullerton and it's a much slower pace. It feels more, you know, the, the classroom sizes, um, all, everything in that regard felt much more safer for me. It felt more me. Did you you live at home that first year? Uh, You know what? I, yes. My first year I lived at home and then I moved out with a teammate and then I ended up back at home again. So I did a little bit of both. I remember Mel telling me, uh, either Mel or Jason, but I think it was, might've been Mel saying, Oh, Hey, uh, we have Jenny topping, uh, coming. And I thought, Oh, so there must be a, another Jenny topping. Like there was no way I, the, the, the woman I saw a year prior was coming to play at Fullerton. Hey, I didn't know the transfer rules other than I know most of the time within the comp within conferences, they'll let you sit a year. But I was like, she would go to Texas or, you know, you name it. When you showed mm-hmm. up at home, Literally in the county, I was like, what the hell? I mean, we were decent. And, mm-hmm. but I was just thought, oh, it can't be the same person. And then when I saw you, I was like, holy crap. What the heck? <laughs> How did that happen? Yep. I was giddy from a selfish point of view because I felt like I had three years of shooting magic. So <laughs> it was just wonderful. But for yeah. you, for that first, you know, what was that? like those first couple of weeks getting used to the program was it really really foreign just the way it was run yeah i mean in a good way were you happy i had mixed i was happy i had mixed feelings at first because i went from a program that in the fall we would literally show up with a notepad and we'd take notes and we would learn from the, our toes to our head how to physically do something. Um, now looking back, you know, that's that's not how I played. Right. I didn't play. My foot does this. My hips do this. The, I, everything for me was feel. Feel and letting it show up. So as much as I was like, oh, this is a whole new concept to learn 
the breakdown of how to do things and write them down, it was interesting to my mind, but it's not how I played. And so shifting into Fullerton, Gramacki was very much a feel player and a feel coach. She was a feel coach. Did it um, help that she was a catcher? A hundred percent. The reality is, is we didn't, she and I really didn't spend a lot of time talking about catching. That's what she said. She said she didn't uh-huh. spend nearly as much time as you would think. No, no. Gramacki to me is, was a brilliant coach. When I, when I look back, there were times that I, I felt like, why isn't she coaching us more? Okay. Like the mechanics. Right. And now I realized the brilliance of how she coached, how she coached. She was connection and she would let us practice things over and over and find the feel of it on our own. This may not be perfect, you know, kids that are more in their head. It may not have been the best fit for them. Right. But truly the best way to play a sport in my mind is feel and touch and out of your mind and a body. It's a body ability. And so she was incredible about not overcoaching us, allowing us to feel what we're doing, make our own adjustments. If we needed a few things, she would give it to us. And her, she cared. She called. She would text us. She would check in on us personally. Um, she was great at getting us in the headspace that we needed to be before the game and after the games. And to me, that was in the long run, way more valuable. And now that I can look back at my career, she was pivotal in my career. Pivotal. Wow. wow. I'll never forget. Um, again, a lot of this, you know, when you spend, when you're an athlete for 20 years and now your, your identity is in it and everybody says, you know, it is the deconstruction of the journey takes years to do to me, to do it properly, to deconstruct how your identity has been so wrapped around being an athlete. And I'll never forget. Um, I, I didn't have, I, I could have, produced what I did at Washington at Fullerton, but I didn't understand myself as a player. So unfortunately, um, well, now when you say I, that, I still think when you say mm-hmm. that you didn't understand yourself as a player, what do you, what do you mean by mm-hmm. that? Um, I didn't understand that I thrive the most in 10,000 people in the stands, my backs against the wall And what I really learned to do after my college career was getting myself to, to, I had to manipulate myself into that headspace if I wanted to do well against, Mm. let's say a a team like Italy, like country of Italy, they're just, they're, you know, we're going to probably run rule them. Right. So in order for me to perform well, I had to mentally prepare as though we were playing Japan. I would have to pace. I would have to make myself mad. I'd have to, I had, I would have to get myself into that space of like battle, but I wouldn't naturally get into that space against a team like Italy. And so what I, what I look back on is at Fullerton, um, 
some of the teams we played, which would have happened at Washington as as well outside of conference. But um, there were teams that there that I played against that I was bored, honestly, and I wasn't as motivated because I knew that we were going to win. And so I what I didn't prepare myself to come to battle consistently the same way. It's got to be hard. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you guys ran through conference those three years. You were by far the best player mm-hmm. on the field, on the team. It was just, you know, an absolute easy visual to find who the best player was. Like, I, I, honestly, I don't know why you have any hits in your Fullerton career because I wouldn't have pitched you at all. You would have been the all-time NCAA walks leader. I mean, you already have 200 in your career. I would have given you a thousand. There's no way you would. Have, I would have ever allowed you to have a hit in conference. Thankfully, they pitched to me. Yeah, those fools. <laughs> that would I have mean, been so hard. It was like, uh, do you remember? It was the o two three four season of baseball when. Barry Bonds was like out of his mind and he would come up with the bases loaded and they would walk him and some managers would get all this grief. And he goes, I'd rather give mm-hmm. up one than four. Well, right. there were times when I, you would come up and I'd be like, are you got to come on. You got to walk her. There's no way you're that dumb to give this girl a chance to just rake mm-hmm. on you. But they did. I don't yeah. understand. <laughs> I mean, I know you can't like, at some point you want to let your pitcher try to be competitive, but you were so far and away the, the beast out there that I'm sure there were days that you were sitting there going, Oh, really? We got to play San Luis Obispo again. Like, Oh, this is going to mm-hmm. be a walk in the park. It must've been, it, I, I can understand how it was tough. Yeah. I didn't understand all of that. You know, I didn't, you're young. Of course you don't. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm not walking around like I'm the best in conference. I have no idea about this. I just, I would have told you if you asked me. <laughs> you're, thank, you're very kind. Thank no, you. I'm serious though. Cause like, so there's, and it's, it's weird to say this, there's, uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, there's subjects, right? Athletes you fall in love with that you can just photograph all day long. So at that same time when you were there, let's see, would he have been, do you remember Danny Dorn? Was he there your senior year? He might have been a freshman. I think so. I, you know, it sounds familiar. Anyway, he to I know me, the name. Right. But, mm-hmm. You were him. Him. He was you. Like every time Danny came up, mm-hmm. I could get bat on ball. I could get him doing whatever. Like he was gorgeous to me photographing. Like he just mm-hmm. fell into my frame and it was so easy. But he might not have been like, mm-hmm. there might have been. Like uh, Justin Turner was on that team in 03 or Chad Cordero, mm-hmm. whatever. Uh, same thing like with softball with, it might've been like photographing Jody. Like, yeah, I can make beautiful photos of her. But when you came on for me in those three years, like mm-hmm. every photo was butter. It was so mm-hmm. easy. Like you went, the way you walked around in your gear, the way you were in the dugout, the way mm-hmm. you swung that bat left-handed, like, Okay. Do you remember me giving you grief at Long Beach State? So you were you were at Washington. You were playing for Washington, and I was mm-hmm. covering you for. Mm-hmm. Do you remember Sports Illustrated for women? Mm-mm. So for three years, SI mm-hmm. had a women's okay. had a women's edition, which I never okay. quite understood. But they were pandering, 
right? It's the swimsuit edition of just trying to make money, but they had a sports mm -hmm. illustrated for women. So I get a call to do a story on you and you're playing at long beach and long beach is a little, I mean, compared to Washington, it's like a rec center. It's totally yeah. small. And it was even smaller then. this is when Pete was there. So it, like mm -hmm. you guys didn't have bathrooms. We had to go to the pyramid to go to the bathroom. That was just embarrassing. Yep. And I got to take a, uh, they want a picture of you and, and I'm like, okay, great. And you have this beautiful left-handed swing and it's very between Ken Griffey Jr. and Reggie Jackson. You just like cork this one. And I was like a total jackass. I'm shooting film and I didn't get enough frames. So mm. I go back onto the third base side where the visitor and I said something to you like, Hey, can you do that again? And you kind of looked at me like, really? You, you really? <laughs> and sure enough, you jacked your next at bat. You hit another home run. That's I was like, fine. I'm in love with this woman. She's gorgeous. <laughs> like she just does everything in front of the camera. So well, you were that athlete. Like you were just so magical in front of the camera that it was so fun to shoot you in those times at Fullerton. Well, I, I appreciate you motivating me because that was the, the best, always the best motivation for me is someone saying like, can you, you know, I don't think you can do this or so anybody to get me revved up. Did you need someone always, to poke the bear? Did you need that? Yes. Always, always. How was it for you dealing? Mm -hmm. Cause you know, we talked about this with catcher position. How was it for you dealing with pitchers? Were mm -hmm. you, were you a, were you mom like, Oh, arm around or were you like master drill sergeant? Like, do you really want me to punch you in the face in front of everybody? Like, how did you deal psychologically with the pitchers on that side? I think, I don't think I was either. I think I wanted my pitchers to feel comfortable and I took responsibility. I would say to them, if, if I call a pitch, and they get a hit, I'll take responsibility. If I call the pitch and you miss your spot and you get hit, that's your responsibility. So I always wanted them to know that it wasn't Jody, Gina, you're not the only one on the mound. I'm with you and I will fight with you and I will take ownership for my own calling and for my own mistakes so that we can actually really function as one and not separate entities. And so for me, I, um, I would give more energy. I would, I would read them really. I think there's a tempo to the game so I could read their tempo. If their tempo sped up, I knew that they were nervous and I'd remind them of their routine. Um, if, if I felt like they were struggling to hit a spot, I would shift out more for them. Okay. So I would try to do more for my pitchers when we were in the game to let them know that I got your back, put the ball here and trust me, trust that, that you can, that, that you can rely on me to help you to be better. And if I had a pitcher that was struggling, it was a challenge for me. So how do I get them to shift to keep them in the game? For me, if I felt like if a pitcher had to come out, it was my, it was my fault because I wasn't able to shift their energy to be able to get back on track or get them on track. Um, I felt that was my responsibility. So um, most of the time it wasn't, I didn't have to yell at them or do anything of like that. Cause for me, 
that felt like I was creating dissension between us. For me, it was trying to get them to relax. So there were times that I'd, before I'd call the pitch, I'd take a really big breath and then they'd take one. So they were realizing, oh, I'm holding my breath. I'm not relaxed. I need to relax. And hey, I got you you know, put the ball right here. I got you. You're with me. I'm with you. So, you know, I just learn how to try to draw them inward more to the focus. You know, some of the greatest anytime to me that, that we threw a no hitter or one hitter or perfect game, it was the ability to be so present that, that you forget that there's a batter in the box. You forget that there's people in the stands. Right. You're so connected. You know, that's the, the concept of the battery. So what's to the me, best again, game you, you ever called? Oh gosh. I, I couldn't even. Did you feel like there was a game, there were games where you're like, Oh man, you and I are in sync. There's nobody else all, here. All the time, all the time. And I think that, that, we get so we get so focused on, and this is my struggle now with, you know, most of the time coaches are calling the game now, that we're so focused on, well, if the ball breaks and you put it in the spot you're supposed to, then, you know, then it, we should be able to get the batter out. But there's so much more to it. I mean, you know, Gramacki has spent, and I spent a ton of time connecting on this, this forefront. There is, there is a channeling of energy directly from whatever you want to call this greater power that happens when you get in sync. And it's a direct conduit between me and my pitcher and straight up to the greater power. And there's this fluidness and flow and easy and effortness and quieting of the game. And, and it can always be channeled, but it's, it's whether you have the ability to get to that space. And in those times, you get the perfect games. So it's how do you repeat that? That's, that's really the, the, the conversation that athletes aren't having enough is how do you get to the, the clear space more consistently? Because that's, that's where you do things that you never thought you could do. Right. I think I want to say it was Oaks. It might have been. There was a game where I photographed and you two looked like there was nobody else out there. Yep. You just, yep. you were playing catch and, and she never had to make you, you, you got set and boom, she hit your glove. And it was like, Oh, yep. this is going to be a quick day. This is five innings. Yeah. We're out of here. You know, what was so fascinating about that is that was the biggest struggle when I stopped playing was where do I find this piece in my life? Because that's the only place I, I knew where I was connected to the divine. Well, I didn't realize I was connected to a greater power, but for, and that's how I see it today. But I felt like there was a part of me missing and I didn't know where it was when I wasn't on the softball field. So I almost went through a depression when I stopped playing. And I think this is consistent with athletes that play for a very long time as they feel like it may be connected to some people may say, well, no, it's the identity of the sport, but it's really, it's the feeling it, it's, there's no better joy. There's no better overwhelming. You're overwhelmed with love and peace and contentment when you're having one of those games where you're so connected with your pitcher that there's nobody else playing. Oh man. It's a that, beautiful space. Yeah, I've never, I've never had anything like that. That just every time I hear athletes talk about that, it just it must be magical. Mm -hmm. wow. Extremely. How did you feel about those three years at Fullerton? Did that those they satisfy you as an athlete and playing softball? 
Or did you feel like maybe um, there was something left? Yeah, I think that I, um, it was beautiful because until I was at Fullerton, well, actually, I have to be honest, um, my 2000 career could have been even better. I remember at one point, um, someone saying to me, you know, if, if you don't, if you don't think about this and this in the box, you're going to hit a slump. And I had never really heard of, you know, it never connected to me to ever have a slump (laughs) and whatever that was, it took me out of, I had a year of just focus, just intent focus to destroy, just to just beat everybody. Right. And that, whatever the purpose of that, you know, I won't say who it was, but it sort of penetrated my focus. And then the next thing I know I was in a, a, you know, a slump, obviously the numbers worked out, but I think about if that, that person hadn't said that to me, but ultimately what happened was that was the first time in my life I had any mental thought playing any negative self-talk. That was the first time I'd ever experienced that. So, yeah. So it, it, you know, I just see ball hit ball. I just got in and knew how to quiet my mind and I did it. I had no other experience in my life before then. So Fullerton was an interesting journey for me because it wasn't necessarily a negative self-talk, but it was now I have to motivate myself to play a team that I know we're going to just beat up on. So Mm -hmm. that was a whole new journey for me. It was learning how to um, show up for my teammates and for myself. So looking back, if I'd, you know, in my later career, if I would have understood that about myself, I could have, you know, I could have had an even better career at Fullerton. So I, I, um, you know, I think I have a little bit of a regret in that sense. Um, yeah, but it's easy to look back now as we're older and be like, Oh, only the 18 year old Jenny would have been told this. Well, that yeah, doesn't mean exactly. the eighteen-year-old Jenny would have listened too. That's the right. That's the one thing about youth. You could tell them all day long. It's actually will they do it? Well, and I learned a lot about myself in in those time periods. You know, could I have reproduced the two thousand year? Had I you know known what I know today? Absolutely, that could have been my entire career. But for whatever reason, I was supposed to experience other flows of of playing. So. Yeah. Well, hitting 472 your uh that 2002 year is not that bad. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Every time yeah. I looked, you were on a base. I tried to make pictures <laughs> of you hitting it. Well, there she is. She's on base. Oh my goodness. Okay, so <laughs> how are you trying to focus in those final that final year of 03 and see cuz you were on the Junior Olympics that the Olympics are yep. right around the corner. Are you are you focusing on trying to make that Olympic squad? Is that something you're in your mind at that time, a year out? Well, I don't know if you remember this, but um, basically the the summer of my freshman year of college, I had had knee surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, that summer, I played first base in a you know in a knee brace for the junior Olympic team. Right. So after that, every summer I played for the national team. Um, so it was the summer we're coming into my, my senior year. I was, I'll never forget this, you know, we're at tryouts and 
um, you know, you can practice, you come out of your season and you have a little bit of time off before you go to national train tryouts. You can practice, but there's something that happens when your adrenaline hits your muscles, when you're in a tryout that creates so much more soreness and fatigue in your body, because there's so much more flood of, you know, endorphins and fight or flight and, there's so much more chemically happening in the body. So, um, you know, summer going into my senior year, I had just made the national team to go play, um, that summer in world championships. And, um, I made the team, we're coming to practice the next day and I'm fatigued we're, we've done, you know, double, triple days of tryouts. My legs are tired. I'm sore. Uh, and, uh, we get out on the field and I'm chasing Laura Berg who's a good friend of mine in a rundown <clears throat> and I dump the ball and I go to, you know, change directions for whatever reason. And I hear a feel a pop. And, um, so now I've torn my knee for the second time. Right. The other knee, correct? And yeah, the other knee. Of so course. <laughs> I'm heading into, uh, yeah, exactly. So I'm heading into my senior year having to have a surgery right away, um, so that I can be ready for season. So, um, I never really, I just never looked that far ahead, but, um, cause you had played in the Pan Am Olympics in Oh three. Mm-hmm. So then there had to be some kind of feeling like, okay, was it Chula Vista? Was that the training facility for you guys? Yeah. Chula Vista. Yeah, yeah. You made it down to Chula Vista. You get at least, did you feel if you got at least into the training facility, you got a chance of making the team? Yeah, no, I, I, I had a feeling that I had an opportunity um, to, because to I make don't know the this. team. Because mm-hmm. I know this was with Misty May when I talked to her about it. It got political for the Olympics for her. Did it get political yeah. for you guys softball-wise? Like, oh, no, no so, doubt. Right. So-and-so's still on the team. They're carrying someone over. You know, there's sure. younger, better talent, but they're going to go with her because they know her. At some point, does that start to wear yes. on you? Um, it's it's unfortunate, you know. I'm just going to be be honest with where I'm at with everything. I don't really sugarcoat things. When you're young, um, you, you make teams because you're good, uh-huh. right? Yep. As you get older, it's, can you sell a product for us? What's your looks like? What's your sexual identity? Um, which, you know, it, it becomes a bigger picture. Who did you play for? And what are the, co- the, the coaches that are, that are, um, the coaches that are going to be coaching you? Did you play for them mm-hmm. in college right. or do they have players that could potentially? So um, it, it definitely becomes a political game. And what's your political views, you know, and unfortunately um, that did play a role in, in quite a bit of my postseason career. So when 04 comes mm-hmm. around, you're on that squad. Mm-hmm. How, what is that like? What's that when they tell you, you know, Jay Topping on the team? I mean, what do you what's going yeah. through your, you know, mind? Yeah, so we get an email, right? <laughs> an and, email. Um, <laughs> yeah, because what they used to do was they would post it 
when we were still at the Chula Vista right, at the training center right, and everybody would walk up mm-hmm. and then you have to see people that don't make the team and they're crying and they're emotional. And I think they just wanted to give people privacy to, to emotionally deal with it as they may. So sure. they would wait. They finally, you know, decided we'll wait until you go home and we'll send an email. So again, it's like, it's back to being in a, in, in a Washington football stadium for the first time, you're sort of overwhelmed because you have no concept of what this, what this journey is going to be like. So it was a surreal feeling. Um, Where were you when you got that email? I was at home and I pulled up the email and, home with you mom know, and dad? just, yeah. At home. home. Okay. So yeah. Yeah. I'm home, home. Um, yep. And just, you know, the ironic part is I spent my whole senior year cause Jen Holt was there, which was a great, she was a great catcher uh-huh. and Gramacki was beautiful and saying, you know, okay, the first part of the season I couldn't catch. And she, you know, she just pulled me aside one day and said, you know what, we're going to finish the season with Jen Holt behind the plate. She's done an incredible job. And just because you're ready, doesn't mean that you can come in and, and, and catch over her. And I, you know what, I really respected that. Um, so I had been doing some bullpen catching, but really the tryout, the 04 tryout, I hadn't done a lot of catching because I played first base the entire season. Yeah. So, um, did you feel fresher? You know what? I, I, um, I never felt a ton of fatigue, you know, the only time I felt was more mental for me was mental exhaustion from calling my own game and, you know, keeping. So I think baseball maybe experiences a lot more than that. I don't think softball as much does. We just don't play as many games as they do. And, um, so I, I didn't really know. I didn't have, for me, it was more like, am I, am I ready? But at the same time, um, they knew me. I okay. played, you know, right. I had been playing on the national team. How many summers? Yeah. You were no surprise. So, they knew you. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you're yep. at home, you get that email. It opens up. What do you do? You scream, holler, you yell Probably, mom and dad. Yeah. You can't believe. <laughs> Check this out. Right. We're going to Athens. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like, um, you know, I've hiked half dome in Yosemite and I'm thankful I didn't know what that was like because I don't know. I mean, I'm far enough away that I'd probably do it again, but you know, after it was done, I don't know if I would, if I would do it again. Um, you know, the year before the Olympics was people don't talk about it. It's, I mean, I, I, it most incredible experience of my life, but talk about hard, you know, when we're athletes that, um, we're really being used to create money. Oh yeah, um, absolutely. And, and and that's the reality. And being women, you know, we're not we're not making any money. No. Thankfully, I didn't have a house. I didn't, you know, my car was paid for. There's no money in this, and we're touring, and we're playing, and we're going to the gym, and we're running, and then we're back on the bus, and we're moving to the next uh, location to play. I mean, talk about an exhausting year. Incredible to play all over the United States and we're putting tons of money in USA softball's pocket because you know, they're capitalizing on our bodies. Right. Really. 
Um, your likeness, your bodies, your, your time, everything goes right to them. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. I mean, there's very few Olympians that make any money back. <laughs> I mean, right. For every Michael Phelps, there's a fencer or someone in yachting or whatever you, they don't, they lost everything. They've done it out of pure love. Yeah. hundred percent. You know, I, I got the amazing opportunity to play in Japan for three years, but it was the first time I was playing for money and I didn't enjoy it. I loved the culture. I loved the experience. I loved learning about the Japanese players and my teammates and learning the language, but I did not enjoy playing for money. There's a level of expectation. Um, it's like, it's like a superhero status that's expected of you. Um, was it because you're American coming to Japan? Yes. Yeah. And I think that, um, it, it felt like, again, I was being expected to be a robot and, um, in order for my teammates to respect me, there was a level of requirement that I didn't function well under. Um, there was a level of, uh, intimacy that wasn't there for me. Was there a bit of a you cultural know? difference too? Just Definitely. To, yeah. I mean, there wasn't a, you know, these, a lot of these Japanese athletes have ability to really disconnect from their bodies to continue to push themselves to the level that they do. It's, it's to numbness. I mean, I remember our first practice, you know, it's you and another one other girl. And we have this, this, whiteboard of all of the hitting drills we're going to do when we're flip-flopping i take 10 swings she takes 10 swings and by the time we finish just that component and each of us we both have our own front toss screen so there's 20 front toss screens now 10 because there's 20 of us at least across the field right so by the time we finish the first 20 to 30 minutes this is after a very very long warm-up and, um, we're, I've already taken a thousand swings Jesus. and I'm, yes. And I'm like, this is incredible, but I can't feel my arms. Like I can't feel my body now. So how is this benefiting me? I can't feel anything. My <laughs> arms would go numb. Like I just, I'm numb. So, um, uh, so for me, it, it just, it wasn't a good fit because I wasn't will. I, I had no interest in pushing my body to a, a place that didn't feel healthy for me. Cause I was already doing that in a lot of ways. That's, that is a ridiculous amount of time mm-hmm. practicing. Mm-hmm. Good Lord. Yeah. Yeah. So we would practice, uh, uh, you know, sometimes seven hours in a day and, and the Americans, I mean, talk about creating dissension within a team, but the Americans, we would go home to our own apartments. They lived in, my teammates lived in dorms. They worked in the morning and then came out to practice and would make the field. We'd practice. After practice, they would go back to the dorm and eat and come back out under the lights and do their own individual work. And this was daily. Oh, my God. Yeah. And talk talk about, um, I don't know how there's joy in that for me. So, you know, I was able to do it a couple years. And then I came home. Um, because ironically, Kat Osterman wanted to go, um, they wanted her to come in and she brought her college catcher, which is super common. 
Right. And that ended up not working out. And they asked me to come back and I played one more year. And I just, um, at that point realized I was a new athlete more than playing Uh, because I didn't, I, it was too explicit, you know, again, I felt partially like, like I was back in a Washington scenario, which was, is great for some athletes, but not for me, you know, tell me about that Mm -hmm. time when you get to don those Olympic outfits and you're walking into the opening ceremonies, what was that like for you? <laughs> this is a, you know, this is a kid from Southern California from little Harbor high school, mm-hmm. you know, did her stint in college, but now you're representing the country and you're all wearing your little matching, you know, outfits. <laughs> and what, were, and what mm-hmm. was your outfits that year? Cause I know like Ralph Lauren's designed some and whatnot. What, what did you guys wear walking in that year? We're wearing skorts, so shorts with us. I, I believe skorts. I don't know if all of us actually wore it. Super sexy. And we're wearing, yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and we're wearing this like Scottish hat. It was. It was a very interesting outfit. Wait, wait. Sc- um, Scottish. Like a hat. yeah. It's like a. Uh, I don't know how to describe what that hat is. It's it's like round in the back and then it you know comes to a, yeah. like a bill in the front. Sure. Uh, um, I still have a, you know, that was one of the most exciting times is, you know, you're at the, um, you're at the village and you're experiencing what like high, like major league baseball is experiencing. You walk into this room and they hand you a suitcase and you're, you're walking past all these tables and here's swatch has got a us an olympic watch here here you go and so you're just you're picking out shirts from adidas who's you know one of the sponsors and you're just going along the line and you're 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 getting all of the perks of being there being an olympic athlete and you know which some athletes experience all the time but it was it was exciting you know um did you take a lot of pictures? You know what's interesting? I did. Unfortunately, it was the time where it was like right bef- it was right as film was on its way out uh-huh. and digital was on its way in and the quality of them aren't great. Um, but I think we've all done a good job of sharing what we had then. Um, but I remember the first time walking into the stadium. And there is, I mean, I have a picture. There's not a seat open in the whole stadium and thinking, this is what I love. This is why I play. It's for this arena, 10,000 people. This is incredible. You know? Did you get to see any other Olympic events while you were there? We, you know what? We, we were there a total of a month um, by the time we left. Uh, after we were one of the, we were one of the first sports to finish. We weren't allowed to go to anything until we were done. Okay. So we win our gold medal and then, um, we're going to all these incredible sports illustrated parties that are, you know, on a, on a ledge that's overlooking, you know, just incredible oceans and outdoor, uh, you know, outdoor bars and, you're meeting Michael Phelps and all these incredible athletes, right? And you're in Greece. It's gorgeous. Exactly. You know, and you're just a small town kid playing softball, you know, meeting 
these athletes that really the only delineation is some of them are millionaires and others of them are making, you know, a couple thousand dollars a month. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, but you got the same swatch watch, you know, exactly right. (laughs) And we're, and we're, and I'm sitting next to, um, Venus, you know, Williams on, on a computer, because we're all trying to get on internet to communicate with people back at home. So you could see error. You're, you know, you're in line to get food. You know, you could see where the, where it brought us all to equal ground. Right. So, um, yeah, it's an incredible time. What was it, what was it like Mm -hmm. when you guys clinched that game and you realize you're going to be, you know, putting on those, uh, you know, warm up uniforms or whatever they kind of like have you wear when you're standing on the podium and you're mm-hmm. going to bow over and someone's going to place an Olympic gold medal on your neck. What was going through your mind? You know, it's interesting because I'll hear young girls to stay to say like, you know, I want to go play for UCLA and then I want to go into the Olympics. You, you see these big goals. When I was in high school, it was, you know, softball was, you know, before my senior year hadn't even been in the Olympics. So for me, you know, my parents at one point, you know, my freshman year were like, would you like to play softball in college? And I was like, I could play softball in college, like just that clueless. Right. Um, so I had, I didn't have this big dream of making the Olympics because I didn't even know that was achievable. For me, I was so in the present moment. I just want to play. I just want to play because this is where I feel at home the most. And so um, getting on that podium, you're trying to put it together. Like what is, and I just remember what is, what is the point of this having that feeling? And, you know, I'm bending down and they're putting the gold medal around my neck and I look up into the stands and my parents and my sister and her boyfriend at the time and an aunt are all just, just bawling. They're crying. And I, I sort of put it together. I was like, wow, this is, this is, you know, at that time, this is, this was my give back to my family who sacrificed everything for me. I mean, we probably could have actually gone on vacations had it not have been about softball tournaments every weekend. And, you know, my sister sacrificed probably a norm, more of a normal childhood so that I could, you know, take this journey. And so for me, you know, my parents always had the opportunity to say, you know, my, my oldest sister's a speech therapist, my middle sister's an x-ray tech, and my youngest daughter's a, a, an Olympian. And so, you know, I got to give that back to them and have that pride of knowing that it all was a purpose, you know, where does the metal sit right now? <laughs> it's actually right now it's in a safe, but a lot of times it just sits in my sock drawer. <laughs> yeah. Why does everything end up in the sock drawer? I know. Right. I, like it's not the first place someone would look if they wanted to take it. <laughs> right. you know? They're looking for the mantle, <laughs> the award stuff. And it's right next to your gray socks that you wore last right. week. Yeah. My dirtiest pair of socks. Yeah, I you're, have, you're, right? you're These holes <laughs> with holes in them, whatever that you really love. Oh my God. Yeah. That is, that is so typical. And I mentioned this, but what was it like? I mean, I mean, you've got this like 30 days of just an absolute whirlwind tour. 
What was it like to be on the SI cover? Did you ever, ever think that you would, you know, that that was going to happen during the Olympics? Never. I mean, there's, it's, you know, it's kind of the concept that of, you know, the recognition that we, if we, if we sit in love and light and, and we stay as present as we can and the knowing that everything in our life is working out for us, the things that can show up are incredible. Um, you know, being able to be on as, as female athletes on the cover was really a testament to how well we worked together as a team and how much time we spent and enjoyed. We really enjoyed each other. Yeah. I mean, the, um, the, that the, year, the, the lead on that is the real dream team. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, it was, it, and again, everybody says this about teams. It was, it was just the most beautiful amount of respect knowing what you can contribute, self-sacrificing and those, you know, just the right combination of humans coming together um, for one, one common goal. And uh, just, it fit that year, you know? Right. So it's the end of August, 2004, you're, Mm-hmm. You know, you're in a, a gold medal Olympic winner. You're on the cover yeah. of SI or you've graduated. Right. Did, you, did you graduate from Cal State Fullerton with a degree in what? Or did you? Did you I'm fi- not graduated. Okay. What did you study? Sociology. Okay. So what, what's mm-hmm. your plan, right? It's summer's ending. What, what right. is your plan? <laughs> Such an interesting so, uh, I mean, it just, it, Crunch- it just ends. <laughs> Doors closed. Yeah. Now what, Jenny? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The next thing is, hey, I'm, you know, I've spent the last however many years living back with my parents. I'm ready for independence again. And so I want to move out. And um, Kelly Crutchman, who was a good friend of mine at that time, um, moved to California with me. And um, this is one of my favorite stories to tell. We're in Belmont Shores um, on down on second street and we're Uh looking at rentals and I'm like, this is where we should rent a place. Right. And, uh, we see a for sale or for rent sign on this cute little fourplex and it's the bottom unit and it's a two bedroom, one bath. We're like, Oh my gosh, this is perfect. And, um, we see a young guy, probably only a couple years older than us. He's, you know, I'm 24. Kelly and I are 24. He's probably 26. And we walk in and we say, we want to rent this place. Neither of us have ever applied for an apartment before. And we're like, what, what do we have to, what are the qualifications? And he's like, well, what do you guys do? And they're, and we're like, well, we just got back from the Olympics. And this guy is like, no way. No way. And he's a huge sports buff. So talk about like meant to happen. We're like, yeah. And he's like, prove it. And I go, okay. Um, we're thinking, we're like, well, I have my softball bag in the back and she has her softball bag. And I go, let me, let me go look. Yeah. This is pre-smartphone. Yeah. So you can't whip out your Instagram page. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and who, you know, who carries a picture of themselves around, you know, you don't have a Polaroid of that in your wallet. Right. I know. <laughs> and so I look in the back of my truck and I'm like, Oh, there you go. And I walked over, I hand it to him and it's the sports illustrated magazine <laughs> and no joke. He goes, it's yours. 
And so we rented our first, you know, apartment and uh, we're living the life. We can ride a skateboard to a gay club that's down the street. And um, there's actually two other Olympians from the Greek Olympic team that are living down the street. And uh, we're just we're, we're living the life. We're living a simple life. We can afford the rent. We're, we're both giving lessons locally when we want to. And we're can we make you know, I made the decision to continue to pursue um my softball career in with the national team and enjoying life because it's it, because it's softball and it's not baseball mm-hmm. where it's like, Oh, you go to, you know, high school, you go to minor leagues, you go to college, there's agents and there's like this structure. Was there mm-hmm. such structure when you're done with the Olympic team to now go to play for the Akron or go overseas, or was it very much on you to figure out the path? Yeah. I mean, the pro league was so new, um, that, you know, we, that, that some of us had been playing in the pro league. Also, I played three seasons with Akron racers, but it was within, you know, playing with the national team. So, you know, there were leading up to Oh four, there were times that I can't actually remember. It might've been after Oh four, um, that, you know, we'd leave for the national team for a week or two here and there and mainly play for Akron. And there are other times where we only played a week or two and then we were gone for, with a national team. So, um, no, there was no, there was no direct path and playing international wasn't really huge then. And the opportunity was minimal. Um, I definitely say in Japan, there were only two or three uh, Americans playing there at that time. So it wasn't as big as it's become. Right. So yeah, the opportunity wasn't huge and there wasn't a direct path. And, but thankfully uh, I don't, I just, I never really worried. I knew that, you know, with teaching softball and a little bit of here, a little bit of there that, that I could put it all together. Did you, know? you feel comfortable teaching? Was that something that came natural to you? I loved it. Why? What gave you the, the, the enthusiasm? I think probably just being a catcher. Um, there's a, you know, again, I was fortunate that I, I never had anybody call my game my entire life as a catcher. I always called my own game. So you start learning how to think two steps ahead. And so that that's what I learned to enjoy, uh, coaching. My coaching style has really shifted. Um, in the past 10 years, you know, when I first started coaching, I had this concept that, you know, you're going to, I can make every athlete be a high level division one athlete. And, um, the reality is you start to realize that it's not as common. And I, I didn't really know that. So I coached a lot from ego early on. And, you know, I thought there was only one way to do everything. And a lot of that has really shifted, um, for me. Uh, I, I really focus so much more on, teaching my female athletes to have a voice and how to set boundaries and how to communicate their needs with their coaches and how to get out of their heads. So I think it's, it becomes more life skills. It becomes more empowering, uh, female athletes 
And within that, of course, they're going to learn some physical skills. Right. Is that where the gold medal training came about? Yeah, hundred percent. Now tell me the origins so, of that. How did that, how did that flower blossom? Yep. So I'm, I'm still playing in Japan. I'm in my, uh, I just finished my first season in Japan. My oldest sister had married a guy that was from the area I live in now. And, um, my mom rented her house in SoCal and moved up. And so I came when I wasn't Japan, you play six months out of the year, three in the fall and three in the spring. And then you have winters and summers off. So I'm home for summer. I don't have a home anymore again, because what's the point of continually renting? I can't rent for three months at a time. And so, um, I'm okay. I'm back moving in with my mom, but now I'm in NorCal. So, uh, I'm living in NorCal and I have, a, a teammate that had played a one year with me on the national team and she says, Hey, I'm going to open a softball facility. You want to come, come do this with me. And so, um, it was called 5131 at that time. And, um, that was my first real, I I had done, you know, some lessons at Fullerton and here and there, but that was my first real consistent in a facility, um, scenario. And I just absolutely fell in love with it. I fell in love with the process and really the connection with the girls and, you know, sort of like what Gramacki did for me. I'll never forget the day that I was just struggling to figure out when I was at Fullerton, how to turn it on, how to motivate myself to be the athlete that I know I can be against teams that are maybe not as competitive and, Um, I walk into her office and she says to me, when you die, what do you want people to say about you? You know, and I go through this spiel of things and obviously I had to spend some time thinking about it. And she looks at me and she said, nowhere in there did you say you want people to remember you for your batting average. And that was such a pinnacle moment for me in my life. And it sort of, set me on a trajectory of, I love this sport, but it's not the defining parts of me. Yeah. Uh, no, it's just a part of your life. It's not you. hundred mm-hmm. percent. Yeah. Now you touched upon but it at that point, but you have to realize yeah. at that point I'd, I had compartmentalized myself and I know that, you know, at some point we're going to start getting into this, but yeah, that's when what I, I want to talk about because um, it's big. It's big. It's huge. It's, 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 it's what our society has done. It's kind of like being black. Well, if I don't actually recognize that you're black, then we're all the same. But what we're missing out is on the cultural differences that are actually beautiful and the diverseness of us as humans that makes us so important. So if we take the culture that black people bring to our world, then what do we have? Then we have, we're comparing everything to, to one, um, one body, one, and what is that? So we're comparing, everybody's got to be white. Everybody's got to be straight and everybody's got to look the same. Yeah. yeah so it creates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Go well, ahead. Go ahead. As I say, you finish. Cause I mm-hmm. think what you're saying is perfect. Well, it creates, um, 
uh, that delineation that I talk about is what was when I was on the field, I felt good. I felt perfect. This is where I belong. I felt oneness with myself. I didn't have to separate myself. But once I stepped off the field, I had to separate myself. And I couldn't talk about, I didn't feel like I could talk about who I was. And so I suppressed, I suppressed a lot of things about myself for a very long time because we all have to be the same now, to be accepted. Right. Cause I mean, we're referring to your sexuality cause you mentioned, and I, mm-hmm. I thought this was the best thing that you just said that, <laughs> that you were looking for a house in Belmont shores, which is a very beautiful area. But yes. you were so fortunate that you could skateboard to the gay club. Like, That's not right. that you were close to the grocery store, the laundromat, <laughs> you know, the library. But you were able to skateboard, not drive, to the to the club, which is yeah. which is great. You know, because that should be a priority when you're 24. You got to make sure you get there. When totally <laughs> safely too. God love you. Yes, you the skateboarding right. over, and you found your way home. But and when, probably walked back. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah, you couldn't find your skateboard. Uh, exactly. When did sexuality for you start to become an awareness of either yourself or in softball? Because it's very yeah. much, you know, oh, if you if you're if you're a woman, you play sports. They're all gay. Or they're <laughs> if you're playing softball, they're all gay. Like, yeah. Well, that's not the case. So yeah. for you, when did that become something you, you experienced? Matt, I've had to do so much deconstructing with this. It's incredible. I mean, this has been my journey the past 10 years of not playing softball. I think I knew very young that I was gay. But 12, 8, 15? Oh, I think I knew when I was like 6 or 7. Okay. But understanding, like, where did you think you were just a little different? Like, you would rather play with Ken than Barbie, or you just, you know, what was the difference? Ken or Barbie, but then I found that I would like have teammates that I would call. Okay, I would call them on the phone, and I look back, and I'm like, I wasn't calling them just to be their friend. I, right. but I didn't recognize that I wanted more from them. Right, I you thought Stacy was cute. I, yeah, I couldn't. I, I didn't. But you didn't nobody know that. Al- I didn't allow myself to, I knew that I was gay unconsciously, very young, but I also very much from the world knew that it was bad. It was bad to be gay. Right. right cause it was, so that's the eighties, mm-hmm. right? Cause you know, mm-hmm. Oh, here's another wonderful thing other than you and I are both Highlanders that you're you and my youngest son uh, share the same birthday. May, oh, wow. Yes. So you're, you're, you're growing up though in those, in the eighties. So let's say you're in 88. I mean, everybody's still freaking out about AIDS, gays, gays, still very odd, very weird, Mm -hmm. you know? So for you as a young girl, and especially that too, and I think people forget, like we just finished watching on Netflix the other night, Halston, which gay gay designer is very, very well done. Ian McGregor killed it, did a great job. But when people mm-hmm. in the growing up, everybody just assumes gay was men. It was so weird to think lesbian. Like it was always yeah. gay men, you know, Andy Warhol, whatever. It was, you know, Studio 54 is gay, but no one ever, the, the, the woman side of gay was like so far behind the gayness mm-hmm. movement. 
So for you to actually be a young girl, that must have been very uh, different to think that way that, wow, maybe I think Katie or Kim is kind of cute. Right. I I remember there was one girl um, that openly came out as gay in high school and the way that she was treated, wow, I was really? like, I can't even, I can't even be her friend because, you know, that's really sad to say looking back now. No, because, but that's Yeah. Then. It takes a lot of courage. Sure. Yeah. And, 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 and it's taken me a lot of, a long time to realize that it's representation that, that, um, you know, the media, doesn't want to normalize for whatever reason, for power, for white supremacy, whatever reasons, doesn't want to normalize that the gay people have been around, transgender people have been around forever, forever. Right. It didn't (laughs) start last week. This is not a new concept. Yeah. Um, And so I had no, there was no representation growing up. I, I couldn't watch a TV show and see a gay couple you know, normally interact with each other and, and it'd be okay. You know, and as I got older, we started to see it more in TV and movies, but if you're very conscious, it's very much stereotypical of how, you know, it's getting better, right. but it's very stereotypical how anybody other than white people are represented. Asians are always represented a certain way, you know, black or African American are always re- represented in a certain light. And gay people, lesbians are always a butch and they're mean and they hate men. And, you know, and so, of course, I don't want to be that. I don't hate men. My dad's my best friend. My best friend in high school was a guy like I I can't be that. So um, it's unfortunate because we're shaped by what we see. And when you're not normalized and when it's very clear that your coaches within the national team program are not accepting of it, then you feel like you're hiding a part of yourself and you feel like you're, you're perhaps you're experiencing some sort of um, politics because of your sexuality. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely, um, it's definitely becomes a role. I think I had Trayvon Freon who just won an Oscar and he came out, Oh, uh, 10, 10, 12 years ago as by, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and he thought at the time it might've been a little bit more easier for him because he was a man and mm-hmm. he gave the F you, I don't care. Like this is who I am. Did you feel at some point it was more difficult for you because your surrounding sport might not be acceptive? hundred percent. I mean, amongst my own teammates, I felt comfortable. Um, but I knew that really any sort of endorsements, any sort of anything past just my ability, um, was weighed upon the fact that my sexual, uh, because of my sexuality. Was it something that you felt like on your trip to Washington? Or at Fullerton, you kind of felt some kind of pressure? Washington, I felt pressure. Fullerton, I did not. Okay. Um, Gramacki um, always allowed us to be who we are. Right. Um, So, and she, again, um, her partner at the time would come to games and, 
you know, it was discreet of who she was, but I'll never forget my mom saying to me when, um, we had a conversation about me being gay. She said to me, I don't know if gay people are good. And I know she didn't say that to hurt my feelings. She was just very uneducated as right. I was. And, um, you know, Gramacki's partner at the time was pivotal for my mom. She's like, I absolutely love this woman. How could this woman, how could this, you know, how could this be wrong when I love these two humans? So I think that unconsciously Gramacki played a huge role in, in um, allowing her gay athletes to be who they were. To say it was a safe space. Did you have anybody mm-hmm. in your life you can maybe look back now and go, oh, they were gay? Like a, like a family friend or like your dad's buddy Jim who didn't realize mm-hmm. Jim was gay? Was there anybody like that? Nope. Nobody. So you didn't have any, you didn't you didn't have any nope. gayness around you. I don't have an aunt you. or an uncle or right. a cousin. Nothing. Yeah, my wife's aunt. She's a lesbian. My mom mm-hmm. when I when my mom and I lived in this apartment off Ridgeway Lane in La Habra, uh, our neighbor Mike was gay, and so I, I've had my, my my cousin up in San Francisco. She's transitioning from female to male. Yep. Like, so mm-hmm. I've had it around a lot. You've like, been so fortunate. Yeah. Like Mike used to teach me, like I didn't realize, especially as a kid, when you're like seven, you don't realize like, um, like he would babysit me and stuff. And my mom would come home and we're singing, you know, show tunes and he's teaching me how to fan dance. And I thought it was great. And she'd be like, Oh, well, this is exciting. At least you're being culturalized by, you know, the other side. And it's like, it was so much fun. I didn't, I never looked at it as I was growing up, like it was a weird thing. Mm-hmm. It was, it was great. It was fun. It's so interesting how people take that side and no disrespect to your mother, but she just was absolutely ignorant. Like she just didn't understand. That's right. That's right. You know, and it's so different today. Like, mm-hmm. and, and we'll dive into this, like being Jenny topping like 10 today would be so different than Jenny mm-hmm. topping 10 years then. Yeah. You know, there's a cure to homophobia and racism and transphobia and xenophobia, and it's called education. Yeah. That's it. People just have to be, have to want to educate themselves. Did, when did you start to feel comfortable in your own skin? Oh my gosh. It's, it's honestly been within the last three to four years. Really? Yeah. (laughs) Wow. What did it take? Um, stopping. You know, I, 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 I'm making six figures in Japan and I'm not happy. And I made the decision I can continue doing. They want me to continue. Mm-hmm. I can continue doing this for five to ten more years if my body can handle it. And I remember thinking, I'm not happy. It's not worth it. And I always chose my, my own happiness uh, over money or success or anything else as being, being happy, right? So I come home and I'm thinking, okay, you know, I'm going to build my business up more and I'm going to do this. And there was happiness in that, but there's this deep hole missing from me. And I knew it. And at that moment, I, I, I knew I, I needed to wake up. 
and I knew I needed to do some healing work and I knew I needed to take a really deep look at why am I separating my sexuality from, you know, one of the most pivotal, pivotal moments for me that kept showing up is I could walk into the room as Jenny topping the Olympian and the room would look at me in a certain light and, oh my God, what is that like? I could walk in another time with those same people as just Jenny Topping, the tattooed gay girl, uh-huh. and have a completely different response. And that that tore me apart. That tore me apart that some people could look at me for what I the success I the worldly success I'd created and compartmentalize that, but but hate the fact that I was gay and call me a sinner and all of those things. And so, um, so I'd lead with it. That was my comfort zone as I'd lead with an I'm Olympian. Cause I knew if I said that people would look at me as good. If I walked in and said I was gay, there's a certain percentage of people that were going to look at me as bad, a sinner wrong. I need to be changed. Um, and that sent me on a, a huge dur- journey of recognizing that I needed radical self-love And, um, even from how much I listened to myself, you know, I did a lot of verbal abuse in order to get myself to motivate myself to go to the gyms when I felt exhausted to go to the gym when I didn't want to, to do things that I didn't want to do because I felt I had to. But what that looked was, you're going to be fat, you're going to be ugly, the world's not going to accept you, you know? And so I had to, I had to, um, it became an ugly game for myself that I had to, to uh, do some work to change. Wow. That's, you know, that's, it's great that you're doing it. It's bothersome that you've had to go through it. Mm-hmm. Um, where, where do you think, where do you think you'll be in 10 years with yourself? You think you're going to be happier, healthier, because you've started this journey of just saying, you know, fuck it. I am Jenny. You know what? I have so much more peace in my life. So when I would talk about stepping onto the the softball field and creating peace and what, you know, again, the more that I've deconstructed that it's, it's from coming so much into the present moment that there's no thoughts of fear of what happens if, you know, I can't make my mortgage or, um, I feel guilty about, you know, s- putting up a boundary with a friend and saying, no, that I don't have the energy to attend this event or, um, it's all of those things have, I've brought in the peace that I had on the softball field into my daily life. And it's really, it's, it's, it's through healing myself from the moment my mom said to me, I don't know if, um, you know, gay is good. And having a teammate from the USA team tell me that if, if, um, I accept God, God will change me. Um, all of these moments where, um, I, I experienced trauma in, 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 um, not knowing myself and not knowing the truth of myself, uh, not knowing my wholeness and my truth and how much, love and light I am. And, uh, so that's really been the journey is to radical self-love. Now I can't, now I'm like, I don't even know how to motivate myself to go to the gym because that talk is no longer present. <laughs> so, um, I have so much more wholeness 
and uh, in my life than I ever have. I don't have to do in order to feel good about myself. I can just be and know that I'm bringing great things into my own life. Um, I know that my only value isn't just the fact that I was an Olympian. Uh, so I have so much more peace in my life doing That's the good. work. That's great. Mm-hmm. How How is it just as Jenny, I don't care what mm-hmm. Jenny wants, just as Jenny, how is it teaching young girls and being like, there's no veil. Like I'm not Jenny the Olympian mm-hmm. or and I'm not <laughs> pretending to be gay. I'm just Jenny. How is that? Yeah. So I, you know, it took me about five or six years into lessons to, to really sort of recognize that I was coaching from ego. And there were a lot of times that I'd say, if, you know, if you don't do this, I'm a, you're going to owe me burpees and, and, and really just the old school thought that if mm-hmm. I put fear in you, I can get, I can motivate you. Right. Fear is a great motivator, but sure. there's no freedom in it. And so I started to realize that if I could actually, if I could actually show these girls how much I respect them and give them some autonomy within even their own lessons and give them the, the, the safe space to say whatever they want to me and really show them that we're on equal ground and I'm just teaching them a lesson and, and they get to buy in as much as they want and they get to dictate how the lesson goes that um, I could open up a whole nother compartment with these girls. I could teach them that they can take this into their own life and they can set boundaries with people and they can tell coaches, you know, when you yell at me from the dugout, when I make a mistake, all it does is make me fear more. This is what would work better for me. And so, um, creating a safe space for them to be able to say whatever they want to me. And then from there, teaching them, helping them to find their voice so that ultimately we can prevent any sort of abuse for them. Right. Right. And that is, that is truly my ultimate goal is, is creating a space where they don't become me too, part of the me too. They don't, um, they feel like they can start to have their own autonomy because that's what I didn't have. I had it on the field, but nowhere else did I feel like I actually had my own autonomy and knew my truth. Right. You know, for every Jenny topping, you know how many girls have had their dream guys, boys have had their dreams mm-hmm. crushed because of some coach or parent that's right. just crushing them. Just you're no good. Yep. You got to do this. You're going to do that. I mean, I, I knew, I knew Todd Marinovich. I don't know if you know who Todd Marinovich mm-hmm. is, but he was, Mm-mm. he's a, was a player. Uh, he set all the high school records. We were at the same time. Uh, he was at uh, modern day for one year. And then he went to uh, Capo Valley and he set all the high school records before high school records like that were just like off the charts. He threw 3000 yards and nobody had done that before in a season. His dad was an East German former you know, Soviet block kind of, uh, trainer. So he literally Mm -hmm. molded Todd into being this athlete, but he crushed him when he went to SC. It was the first time he ever had soda. He had never had a big Mac. Like he just, (laughs) it crushed him. He went, he left, got marijuana, got suspended went to the Raiders two years. He was out heroin addiction, but I got to play with him in summer ball and 
he was by far the greatest athlete I've ever seen on a football field. And everybody trying to do good crushed him. I just crushed every bit of light and joy he had out of it. And it was so sad. And I'm sure that happens all the time. So for you to be able to just give these young girls like a comfortable place to learn and let the sport blossom for them is, mm-hmm. is magic. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that really heads into so many other topics that, you know, we won't have time to get in today, but the reality is, is that, um, we need to allow humans to have balance in their life. Men need to be able to have emotions. We need to be able to look at the scenarios. We're sacred humans. We need to be able to look at situations that have created trauma in our life. I mean, he sounds like he had trauma from his dad. And if we don't heal our trauma, there's only a few ways to handle it. We numb it in some form to escape it. And then it becomes something extremely unhealthy. And um, until we recognize that we are sacred humans and everything that we say affects people, and people will say you're just a sensitive creature, but why do we have people that numb in all forms? We numb by overexercising, overeating, alcohol, drugs. And, you know, I'm not saying I don't participate in some of these things at times, but the reality is, is there's a reason why people are doing it and at a high volume. And it's mm-hmm. because we haven't, we haven't healed from things that we think are no big deal, like being embarrassed on the field for the first time in front of parents and people, um, being forced to, uh, experience fear of failure, you know, because I'm going to make you run because you made a mistake. All of these things affect humans. Oh, absolutely. We, when we don't heal from them, what do we do? We numb from it. We escape. Yeah. As a creator, if Mm -hmm. you don't fail, you haven't taken a chance like you have to be willing to fail and, and, and right. you cannot be castrated and beaten up over it, you, you know, cause mm-hmm. you could just, you, that's the worst thing to do to people. Yeah. Well, it's like the whole concept of, I understand the purpose of the military is, you know, you need to, you have to separate humans from their own identity so that they will follow through exactly the commands that are given to them. But when, and, 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 and in a lot of ways we try to create the same concept in athletics. Um, but separating us from the truth of who we are is what the detect that it separates us from our greatness because the greatness is living the truth of who we are. It's not creating multitudes of us. And it's, that's been a huge part of my coaching is, you know, I'm probably not loved by a lot of coaches in the area because I don't agree with verbally abusing athletes in order to get them to be successful. And that's okay. It's, that's all right. Yeah. If they don't agree with you, mm-hmm. you need to have yeah. different coaches. If you're all the same, you would come up with the same sure. crappy athlete. Right. What, right. Ad, what advice do you have for young girls off the field? And then what advice mm-hmm. do you have for them on the field? That's a very broad question. 
on the field, I say, first and foremost, I say this to the parents all the time, find a space where the athlete can play free, where she's not overcoached, where she's given the opportunity to take chances. You know, the concept is you can't be a hero unless you're willing to fail. So, you know, one of the main things I'm, I set goals for my athletes to take chances. Okay. Your, your next game, your goal, the first runner that gets on base is for you to make a pickoff attempt. So we need to right off the bat, take opportunities and it's not about actually getting them out. It's actually just constantly stepping through the fear of failure. If you can, you know, if you can put yourself in positions more times than not to experience pressure, then you'll handle it better when you're calling a game and you have a runner on third base, challenge yourself to call pitches that go in the dirt because when the game's on the line, it's not going to feel comfortable when you're playing in front of 10,000 people, the curveball has been smashed the last two at bats. And now you have to go to the change up or the drop ball that, um, puts you as a catcher in a position where you have to protect the ball from getting past you. And, um, so I'm a big, I'm a big, I'm the opposite. Um, I'm a big proponent of actually um, advising or incentivizing my athletes for taking chances and taking risks and stepping through fear of failure. Because ultimately, you know, in order to achieve worldly success, that's what we're doing, right? Yep. Off the field. Um you know, it, it takes a lot of courage to not separate yourself. So, um, you know, I'd say owning all parts of who you are. And, and I know a lot of that plays a role in parents, but if you can find, you know, someone around you that can, that can, um, have your back in, being all parts of yourself, no matter where you show up. You know, I, I, um, took me a long time. I was into my late thirties to realize that every time I show up as myself, I belong. And the days that I don't show up as myself, I don't belong there. And I, and I don't feel comfortable. And that comes for all kinds of settings, show up, showing up in a fancy restaurant, you know, where I might be slightly underdressed or whatever the scenario is. If I show up as myself, I belong here. And, um, I think that's the bigger picture conversations that aren't being had as much. Hmm. Well, that's still, that's good advice for, for the <laughs> young ladies out there. All right, yes. let's, let's leave this on a, on a, on a different note. I'm going to let okay. you be queen for a day. What rule change would you would like to see or implement in softball? In softball. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I thought if you were going to say in the world, I'd no, say tell. That's tell, too tell easy. Them, tell them. Oh, jeez. You there? I would implement the rule that coaches are not allowed to coach in the game. Oh, wow. Yeah. Coach in practice. And give the game to the girls, to the athletes, whatever sport it is. So you're telling me you hate having that damn wristband on the forearms now and everything oh is numbers in six, seven, four, four, twelve, sevens. And you're just like, 
Nobody yep. knows anything anymore. They just have to keep looking at their wrist. Yep. It's like, oh. Especially in our game because now we have time limits, time limits and all of – there's so many girls playing softball, which is incredible. But now because it's become so much about money, all the games are an hour and 20 minutes no matter what. So they spend most of their time looking down at their wristbands. <sighs> and and then, you know, they start to get recruited by college coaches and they have no instincts. The right. instinctness is not there because they're – they're constantly being forced to look at your wristband. Why didn't you do this? You know, you can't, you're not ready to call your own game. Right. It, it's, um, it's unfortunate because the, inst- the one percenters will do their thing. Sure. Right. But there is the, the two, three, five percenters that could really use the opportunity to play free and not be controlled so much. All right. Tell and me. I think it's the same thing at home. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I was gonna say, tell me if I'm crazy. My rule change for softball, <laughs> and if you heard Gramanke's okay. podcast, you know it is. I want softball fields to have the freedom to have any kind of dimensions they want. <laughs> I don't. It drives me nuts that softball is like so stuck with a shape. Like it can't be the fence can only be so high, so low, and it can only be so <laughs> deep. And so I would like to see left field. 300 feet and right field can be 180, but it has a 20 foot wall, like some kind of character to the softball field. Am I nuts or, or is that? No, I, I think it's actually fascinating because people think safety is in predictability, right? Yeah. And I think that would be actually very neat if you went to Long Beach and this time left field is 300 feet and right field's a hundred feet. You know, it would create more, um, people would have to adapt more, right? Sure. We wouldn't be so, I love it. I, I think that's actually super neat. Wouldn't you like to be a Yankee and you're always sitting in that short porch and right field, <laughs> right? <That Yeah>. would, <laughs> not that yeah. you needed any help, but what if, what if mm-hmm. Fullerton center field was center field was 340 feet. Now your center fielder right. has to play different because a ball over her head. I mean, it could be a triple easy or inside the park home run. Like it just changes. Sure. Everything is so safe and softball in its makeup. It drives me nuts. Mm-hmm. And I don't yeah, want it I'd to be, the old- yeah. And I don't want it to be yeah. more like baseball. I just want it to have mm-hmm. some character. Yeah. It's like the only, the only really change we see is the third member on the field, which is the umpire. Right. Right. Um, that we don't talk enough about, but um, yeah, I love that. I, I, I think that, you know, there's very few athletes that are going to play in the Olympics or play on a top five, you know, um, division one team. So what is the bigger picture that we're teaching athletes at a younger age? That becomes the goal. Um, and I think that adaptability to change and being uncomfortable is huge. It's a big part. You know, we create this routine by always warming up exactly the same because it, that feels comfortable. Right. But nothing, nothing when the game's on the line feels comfortable. Hmm. Nothing. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Jenny, I uh, can't thank you enough for taking this time out of your day, you know, coaching young girls the right way and, I'm so glad you're in a better place and you're happy and you know, you're, you got, I saw you're engaged. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. She's beautiful. You're lucky. Thank you. 
Thank you. Yes. And uh, next time I see you, I want to give you a hug. I can't wait. I'm this so, is so I, fun, Matt. I'm, I appreciate you having me on. Uh, I'm so happy. Got to talk to a Highlander. You're an absolute stud. If <laughs> I can have a daughter, I got I got three boys. If I can have a daughter, I want to be like you. Oh Thank my you. God, you're That's awesome. Very sweet. Yeah, you. You're the Thank best. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jenny Topping. Please click the like button and don't forget to subscribe. You can find all of our shows on the website.